This episode is brought to you by FastBitcoins.com. FastBitcoins.com allows you to buy Bitcoin easily and safely in physical locations in the UK, Canada, and Estonia, and they're expanding quickly. They are the world's first cash-to-lightning exchange, delivering your Bitcoins right over the Lightning Network. They also have integrations with Samurai Wallet and Breeze Lightning Wallet, and more coming soon. Fast Bitcoins offers users the ability to stack sats without giving up too much personal information, and the business never holds customers' Bitcoins. Find Fast Bitcoins vouchers on BitRefill and physical point-of-sale retail outlets in a growing number of places. Check out the FastBitcoins.com interactive map to find the location nearest you. Hello, Bitcoiners. My name is Ansel Lindner, and this is Bitcoin and Markets. On this show, we honestly explore Bitcoin to the best of our ability. We take a look at stats, metrics, the tech, and the economics behind it all. My goal is to stay ahead of the curve and to take you along with me. Thanks for joining me. Let's go. Hello, Bitcoiners. Welcome back to the show. Happy Friday. Sorry I missed last Friday, but the newsletter did go out. So don't forget to sign up for that. Bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash report. And I had a live stream on Wednesday. This one was... For patrons, but it was open to the public so you guys could join that. You can find that on my YouTube channel. Why don't you guys go on over there and subscribe and, and help support the show? That'd be great. Today I'm going to talk about the Fed and these repo agreements. Try to explain them as well as I can. Um, nobody has a 100% grasp on what they do, which is pretty sad, uh, but I'll try to explain them as best as I can. And then I have a bunch of other news items here that I'll talk about, but that's after the price. So let's go. All right, guys, let's get into the eToro price talk. eToro is the world's leading social trading platform. You can interact with other traders, follow successful traders, get followed yourself. You can even start with a free demo account. Use my link in the show notes. Okay, current price on Bitstamp right now is 10105 It's jumping, ticking some good ticks right now. So we had this big sell-off during the live stream, actually. We're hitting the end of this mini triangle. And we were dropping, we dropped right off through that. Actually, right when I stopped my stream, we saw that huge drop from 10,000 down to 9,600. So I did miss that, but we were kind of watching it just before that. Um, and then miraculously, we had the famous Mu formation in Bitcoin. If you, um, I don't know, this is kind of something old from uh, four years ago or something like that, where Bitcoin always seemed to make these, this shape with a, a sharp sell off, then it retraces 50%, goes sideways, and then finally comes back for a 100% retrace of that initial uh, dump. And that's what we saw. So the price went all the way back up to 10.4 and then turned over now and it's uh, coming back down towards 10,000. Um, I even saw a couple people on Twitter saying that 10,000 will never break again. Um, people just never learn. Okay. This is most likely it's going to, I mean, I would give it about a 95% chance that it's going to break 10,000 again and, uh, probably a 50% chance that it's going to break this, uh, 9,400, maybe a little bit more, about 60. I'm still leaning to the bearish side. <laughs> if you guys have been listening to the show, I, I, have been bearish for a while. Uh, I'm not, I mean, short term, this whole run up from the, well, from April, basically, I've been waiting for a 
you know, a real big sizable correction until I feel some panic uh, going on. And I think we'll get that if we drop down out of 9,400. People will really uh, be going crazy right then saying, okay, this is it. Plus, there, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of other things here with the um, kind of fundamentals in this market. Uh, they're just not strong. Volume's not strong. Google Trends are approaching bear market lows. I mean, it looks really, really bad for Google Trends. Of course, I'm not looking at every single search term, but Bitcoin alone is covers that, and it's looking really anemic. Same with volume. Of course, there's all these geopolitical and macroeconomic risks going on, so there is this general risk-off feeling, even with the ECB saying they're going to start QE again. They lowered rates. The Fed is starting to lower rates. There's all sorts of um, quantitative easing going on around the world. We are seeing cracks in the system. And that's why I'm, I'm going to talk about the repo market here in a minute. But overall, there's this, even though the stock market is near all-time highs, at least the S&P, there's this feeling of uneasiness out there, right? And the minute that this it starts breaking, there's going to be a rush to liquidity. There's going to be a rush to safety. And for me, that's Bitcoin. I will definitely be going to Bitcoin as a safe haven. And many people will more and more every day, slowly but surely. And uh, But initially, in an initial sell-off and an initial financial crisis, I think Bitcoin will be hit pretty hard but then recover quickly. So that's kind of what I'm looking for and what I'm expecting. Um, but anyway, this is the environment, the climate that we find Bitcoin in. We also see that there's uh, BACT is supposed to be launching on Monday, and we've been waiting for BACT for a long time. Um, so it could be, it's either going to be a non-event or a sell the news event. And um, that just happens to coincide with a lot of the end of this pattern that we're in. Overall, too, the, the large-scale technical pattern on the charts is a descending triangle, which is a bearish, a bearish pattern. The only thing out there right now is that's positive is hash rate. So where do I see Bitcoin going this week? Um, again, I'm bearish. I think that we will fall out of this pattern um, sometime or other in the next week or two. Um, and so I would be looking at that. Okay, let's go on to this hash rate thing. Let's talk a little bit about this hash rate stuff. So um, this quarter alone, so from July to now, we've seen a 60% increase in the hash rate from 60 exahashes all the way up to 99 exahashes. Um, the, the whole year or since the bottom of the hash rate, we've seen a 250% increase roughly. And in that same period, we've seen a 325% increase in price. So hash rate is still lagging price slightly. And with increases in efficiency and stuff, you know, like I talk about uh, two or it's like, what did I say? One to 3% is roughly every two weeks is just efficiency gains. Well, if you take that into account, then you know, hash rate is definitely lagging uh, the price still significantly. Um, so this doesn't really tell me too much. Uh, the hash rate is still coming online and it's still uh, catching up with price. Maybe um, 
When the price does fall out of this formation, we will see a uh, plateau on the hash rate. I don't know. Um, but bottom line is hash rate follows price. So by people adding more hash rate, you don't get the price to go up, right? <laughs> the price goes up and you then you get more hash rate. Um, that's how that's how this works. So a lot of people are saying, oh, this this hash rate is got it has to increase the price of Bitcoin. No, it, it doesn't work like that. It's the same where like if it takes you uh, say it costs you ten thousand dollars to mine an ounce of gold uh, that has no impact on the price of gold. Gold could you're just going to be mining at a loss. Same here with Bitcoin. You're just going to be mining at a loss. Uh, if that's the case. So um, hash rate follows price. In other words, <laughs> um, you can't use hash rate to predict future prices. Um, it's kind of like a three-month or six-month lagging equilibrium price. It, it doesn't tell you exactly where the price is going to go. It's just going to kind of give you an idea of what's happening on the network. So um, as we saw throughout 2018, the price kept going down and the hash rate was going down as well. So the hash rate didn't like stop the price from falling. The price kept falling and then the price pulled the hash rate down with it until the price turned around and then the hash rate found the bottom and it came up with the price. So you can't use hash rate to say, Hey, we're going to break up out of this formation. Um, the most you can say is watch out miners, because if this price does fall, you're going to be squeezed. It also, you can glean some other information because miners do have a different set of uh, market players and market participants that they deal with versus um, hodlers or, you know, traders or whoever. And uh, so they are, however, they're viewing this market will be represented in the hash rate. So uh, it does do that, but it can't, most miners, most miners, they don't have um, a crystal ball or anything. So they are just following the price like everybody else. All right. Let's talk about lightning. So Zap Wallet came out with a new service, Olympus, and you can buy directly from the Zap Wallet uh, now. So you can, uh, pay with a debit card, I think, or a credit card and get uh, the Bitcoin directly on your Zap wallet uh, on Lightning Network, um, which is really cool. One of the sponsors of this show, Fast Bitcoins, fastbitcoins.com, they were the first company to do cash to Lightning exchanges. Um, now Zap is offering the same thing in their app with like a debit card, credit card. So this is pretty big. And this does show that the growth of the Lightning Network is not represented in those public stats, right? We cannot know what the real volume and the real capacity and all that is of the Lightning Network anymore. Don't forget that. I see several people out there on a weekly basis saying that Lightning Network isn't growing or it's barely growing. No, it's growing very, very quickly. It's just that it's private, right? That's Lightning Network is more private than the Bitcoin consensus layer, the blockchain layer. So, um, yeah, it's, it's growing lights out. Just look at this zap thing. Now, what I thought was really cool was, uh, Jack Mahler's the hero that we need. 
<laughs> in this article, it's the Coin Telegraph article. I will link it in the show notes. It's hilarious. Explaining the impetus behind Olympus. Mahler's didn't mince his words. Quote, do we wait for Coinbase and BitPay to come around to Lightning? Leave it up to the closed source elites that have misrepresented Bitcoin for years to take the baton and run to the finish line? No, fuck that. <laughs> oh man, he is the hero we need. <laughs> He's the hero we need and the hero we deserve right now. Um, great, great line there and good work on the Zap wallet. I'm excited to use it. Okay, I have one more story here before I get into the repo stuff, and this is just about all coins and things. So there was this report, and I talked about this on my live stream, so you guys can go check that out over on YouTube, but um, there was this um, report out. Let me, I, I gotta find the link here. Hold on a second. There's this report out by Brave New Coin. And they're a fairly decent uh, media outlet. Brave New Coin is okay. They've had some really good writers in the past, like uh, Carpe Noctum uh, and others. But anyway, so this is a report. I think you have to buy it. This is the synopsis over the abstract of this report. But basically they're saying that um, Ethereum's having big problems. <laughs> Has the ship sailed for Ethereum is the title of this. As a world computer... Ethereum can't afford to miss the massive opportunity in Enterprise, but it appears the ship may be leaving port without it. Ethereum has been a long road to scalability in solving the arduous technical issues to becoming the world's decentralized computer. That's not true. Amid developer disagreements and fragmented governance, Ethereum's direction and vision for Ethereum 2.0 is struggling to reconcile with its many stakeholders. That is true. And the price of its native asset, I like how they use the term native asset, Ether, has uh, struggled to find much moment, uh, find much momentum as the public waits for its much anticipated upgrades, Istanbul and Serenity. This new report from Brave New Coin Research explores Ethereum's enterprise opportunity, what the challenges are to capitalizing on the opportunity, and profiles some prominent competitors that also have their eye on the institutional prize. I mean, it just goes into all this talking about how there's a lot of competition, they're not so great with, uh, they haven't shown a lot of uh, dApps coming out. They haven't built this moat around them like some Ethereans will tell you that they have, but, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting read. I'll link this in the show notes as well. Uh, but the competitors they list here, Tezos, Tron, Neo, and Cordano, uh, they don't list uh, EOS. But EOS is, I think, out of all of those right there, EOS is the next highest coin on the market cap. Uh, so I don't know why they didn't list that. Um, but... This is a related story now. So EOS, everyone's worst fears about EOS are proving true. And I've said for a long time, like, this is a centralized thing. One of the things that EOS did was they wanted to be an Ethereum killer. And so they said, we're going to purposely centralize slightly, giving up a little of the decentralization for more scalability. And so that they were supposed to be this big killer of Ethereum. But it, it all... 
falls down, not necessarily because of the centralization. Okay. First off, with this type of centralization, you cannot be censorship resistant, but the whole incentive structure and the whole like, uh, reason for, uh, blockchains or blockchain networks or distributed consensus networks is not for this programmability and distributed computing. That's not what it's for. And so it doesn't lend itself well to that. That's why Ethereum has issues. That's why EOS has issues. Um, all of these other chains are having issues of just finding any sort of adoption because that's not what the, this technology is for. It's no good for it, right? I mean, if you want, you can use AWS. That's a better solution and you can launch a, uh, an app on AWS. Um, why launch an app on Ethereum when you can launch an app on AWS? It doesn't make any sense. So, uh, yeah, this, I'll just read a little bit about these. This is Coindesk. So they have these takeaways at the top of the article. EOS is the world's seventh largest blockchain by market cap with a value topping three billion. However, the project has long been plagued by fears that its structure was too centralized, and now the lion's share of entities that govern the chain are in China, prompting fears of state intervention. EOS contributors devoted to building centralized, oh, sorry, decentralized apps and development tools for the blockchain are losing clout and making little or no money from contributing to the health of the ecosystem. One of them publicly disavowed the blockchain earlier this month, citing the excessive power of the largest EOS token holders. Block One, the company that launched the code behind EOS, following a $4.1 billion ICO, so... There was a $4.1 billion ICO, but the market cap is $3 billion. What <laughs> is the largest token holder? So this block one is the largest holder. Uh, critics say it could easily redefine governance on the chain, but has yet to take action. Okay, so it has a lot of problems. And there, there's also this idea about in EOS, there's a cartel of these because uh, it's proof of stake. And now there's this cartel of stakers. And they vote for each other. Um, and they've been able to game the governance system there on EOS. It's all a big game with a billion dollar payoff or three billion dollar payoff. And the same will happen to Ethereum. You know, when they go proof of stake, if they ever go proof of stake, the same is going to happen to them. It's just going to slowly get taken over. It's going to slowly lose its functionality and people are going to slowly lose or quickly lose uh, interest in it at all. And like I said, this technology does not lend itself to decentralized computing. Find another freaking use case. Now Ethereum is talking about DeFi and trying to redefine themselves from decentralized computing to decentralized finance. It, it's all, it's just the next thing. Okay. Bitcoin is DeFi. Lightning is DeFi. We don't need all of these other things. Tether is DeFi. Well, it's kind of DeFi. And it's taking over the Ethereum network. So, I mean, these, this whole segment here is just to say that these altcoins, yes, they're having a little pump, which isn't too impressive. If you look, you know, zoom out, um, it's, it's going to turn around. This is a very big, uh, bull trap for these altcoins and where it's going to turn over. That's another reason why I think Bitcoin must continue down too, to bleed these altcoins even more. But all right. That's enough of that. Let's get into the repo stuff. 
So I just wanted to take a few minutes to describe what happened this week because I had a few people ask me questions uh, on DMs and Twitter and uh, other things. Plus, when I dis- discussed this on my live stream, I got asked this question and uh, we had a good discussion about it. But anyway, so of course, the Fed lowered interest rates again this week, lowered it by 0.25. So they followed the ECB's decision last week to lower, they lowered it 10 basis points, but they're already negative. So the ECB uh, effective rate now went down to negative 0.5%. And they also announced QE starting back up, infinite QE. The Fed dropped interest rates 25 basis points, um, but they're still positive. I believe it's 1.75 to 2 is the effective window right now. So they're still positive. And, but they cut and they did not announce QE, but Powell did say in his comments, uh, that they are open to QE in the future, but they're not open to negative rates. He pretty much what he said was, uh, he thinks they can avoid negative rates because, uh, they have other weapons. Uh, to me, that means they're going to just, you know, pump cash in. But anyway, that's not the biggest drama. This week we saw a freeze up of the money markets, the overnight liquidity markets. And what the way this this is kind of foreign to a lot of people, but the way this this works from my understanding is that uh, you know, banks are constantly involved with some overnight swaps. They they want to uh they need some liquidity the next day. I don't know, maybe it's half a half a billion dollars or whatever they they they're trading overnight. And so what they do is they offer up some of their collateral, their assets, and they get money and then they rebuy it the next day or two days. They might roll it over to for a week, whatever the agreement is. And uh, that's the way that normal money markets work. So you can see if there's like an emergency liquidity, uh, we're talking 24 hours because this is overnight. And that's why it can just break. Like we saw in the, the big chart I tweeted out of the uh, effective overnight rates, interest rates, they just snapped up to 5%. Like in one day, because <laughs> all of these uh, swaps or, or uh, loans are overnight. But they, they hit into this liquidity crunch. Banks were unwilling to lend to each other. So the Fed had to come in and provide this overnight liquidity. The first day, I believe it was something around 25 to 30 billion. And then on Tuesday, it went up to 75 billion. And then Wednesday, 75 billion again. And that's when Powell was talking from the Federal Reserve. So it was kind of, you know, he was in the hot seat and kind of embarrassed. He kind of sloughed off this, uh, this whole drama. I wouldn't talk about it because this is a huge deal, but they kept pumping in money every day. They had to meet because no banks would lend to each other. And so the fed had to step in and they ended up pumping in. I think it was like $275 billion this week of pure pump, pure printing of money and buying assets from banks. Now, a lot of people said that, Oh, this is overnight. So they can re, you know, they just, uh, rebuy it the next day, but no, <laughs> no, that there's an option to rebuy. And if you sell to the fed, why would you buy that back? Right? You're going to sell the fed your crappiest assets, your most toxic assets possible. And then you're going to not buy them back because you just, 
You just wanted to pawn that off. These basically worthless uh, liabilities or loans that you own, and you're going to pawn those off onto the Fed. So the Fed basically bought almost $300 billion in a week of toxic assets. Now, this is before QE. This is before any sort of fiscal bailout from like TARP from the first financial crisis. So this is starting. And we'll see what happens over the weekend and on Monday. If, if they redo it again, another $75 billion on Monday. Who knows? Maybe they'll have to do $100 billion. Um, so it's crazy. It's, it's totally crazy. The, the way this differs from QE, so this isn't technically QE because QE, there's no option to rebuy or intention, uh, implied intention to rebuy. But with, uh, with these repos, there is. But I wouldn't do it. What's the Fed going to do? You know, let you go and solve it. Let there be a bank run. And one of the bad things is, too, we don't know which banks needed this. It could be American banks. I don't think so. I think it's European banks with American offices, U.S. offices, because they can uh, access this window as well, this overnight market. So I think it's European banks for the main, for the most part. But it could be, uh, who knows? It could be the Southeast Asian banks or something. But most likely it's European banks. Um, and it's just, we don't know who it is. We don't know what assets. Did they sell the Fed some really bad junk bonds, you know, the CLOs, the collateralized loan obligations. It's just a bundle of really bad corporate junk. Is that, is that what they got? Um, we don't know who it was or what it was. We just know the total and we don't know if they rebought it. We don't know if the Fed was made whole. I mean, we'll see, I guess, when they come out with their numbers for their balance sheet. Um, I don't know how often those are published, but I guess we'll see that. That it's still there. But anyway, <laughs> that's a wrap for me today, guys. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. If you got value out of the show and you want to support me making more content, go to patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. I give my patrons a ton of extra content every week. We do a live stream on Wednesdays and then I cut the audio for them. And on Discord, you get access to the member only area. I want to thank everybody that does support the show. It means a lot to me. I'm trying to make this into a sustainable business for myself, and I want to get value from the people that I provide content for, right? I do love the sponsors, fastbitcoins.com and eToro, but I really love my patrons. So if you want to support the show, go over there to Patreon and support. There's also non-monetary ways to support the show, like rating us on iTunes and signing up for the report and all sorts of other things, telling people about the show. That's always great. So, all right, that's it. Get outside, spend some time with your loved ones this weekend, get off Twitter, get off the internet for a bit, unplug, spend some quality hours with those people that are dearest to you. And all right, that's it guys. See you next time. Peace.